All right, well, come on back. Thank you for a wonderful opportunity to worship this morning. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Doug, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Herb, thank you too much, too. Appreciate it. Just a few announcements this morning as we uh, get continued with our worship service, our normal announcements. Don't forget about uh, Wednesdays. Uh, we have our youth activities at night. No children's uh, youth or kids' activities at this time, but still we have Amplify uh, Youth Ministries going on on Wednesday nights, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. And I was commenting to Zach and Abby uh, last time. I, I get a chance to sometimes hang out on Wednesday nights with the kids and, and watch what go, goes on. And, and I was commenting to Zach, I said, I don't think I've ever seen a summer youth ministry like 10 Strike Summer Youth Ministry. Usually it's sparse, like you don't have a whole lot of kids, or at all. And uh, upstairs, you know, we had, what, 30, 30 kids at a time, usually, you know, 20, up to 20 to 30 kids, minimum. And uh, it's just so cool to watch, and I just appreciate their ministry and what God is doing in our youth. Um, also, don't forget Touch Point with Pastor Steve and Joyce. Again, God's wisdom today is the theme, part seven. Working on that at 9 a.m. Um, let's see if there's any other major ones going on. No fellowship meal today. And a reminder that we do have a nursery for our little ones over there if you want to take advantage of that. Um, if you didn't already, get them there. If you'd like to, you sure can. And just another announcement, a reminder about the elders um, review here. Uh, our TCC elders are submitting Andrew Erholtz to become a TCC elder on Sunday, July 23rd. They are also submitting uh, Gilles Mbo and Peter Coffin to become elders in training on that date. Input concerning them or suggestions for other nominations can be given to Pastor Steve, Gus Shogren, and Dean Patrell. So thank you so much for uh, that um, service and, and following the calling that God has given you. Appreciate that. All right, I want today, real briefly, uh, jump into Matthew 6 for me, if you could, if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, verse 1. It's another example, and I, and I don't know if I brought it up. I think Peter shared it once or twice, um, Matthew 6. And, uh, but it's another example of where God is really, and Jesus is really demonstrating what's most important is what's in your heart, right? And I'm going to ask that you can challenge yourself this week as you move forward to do it this week um, based on what the Bible is telling us too. Again, this is uh, Jesus speaking, 6 verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. So your motivation is to be seen by others, right? If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And it also talks about prayer moving on. And then it continues to talk about fasting and what you'll receive as a result when you do so in private, right? When you do so in private. It's about setting yourself aside, right? And giving something to God, doing something for Him, right? And... I was thinking about that application and worship as well. 
I notice that I make the most mistakes when I start worrying and thinking about what others might think. When I start worrying about what others might perceive as correct, well, you know, it's the wrong tempo, it's the wrong fingering, it's the wrong singing, it's the wrong... I start worrying and looping about that rather than focusing on what God wants. Rather than focusing on what the connection that he and I need in private, right? And so that's the challenge that I give you this week. Focus on something that you can do in private for God that no one else knows, no one else cares about, no one else would think about, that you can focus on that's only between him and you. Because then and only then is where you're really showing and demonstrating God what's in your heart, right? He knows, of course, what's in your heart. He knows that. But this is an exercise. This is a thing that if you get in a habit of doing your reward in heaven, your role there changes. Your, your closeness here on earth, right? Your relationship with him gets stronger. So I just encourage you to challenge yourself to pick one item a day, one thing a day, where you can focus on just what God wants in your life and in private. So today, if it's on your heart to give, focus on that. If it's on your heart to give, think about that in your heart. And again, when we give, what he's asking here is when we give, we don't sit here and brag and boast and say, I gave all this money to the church. I gave this to the church. I did this for everybody. We do it, and we do it for God's glory, not ourselves. So that's what I asked this morning. Would you bow your heads this morning and pray with me over this morning's offering? We have the black boxes in the back of our um, back of our uh, auditorium here, and uh, we'll bless that offering. And again, Bless your challenge for this week, too. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you so much again for this opportunity to worship you. We do ask, I ask, that you evaluate my own heart and hopefully the hearts of others as well as to the intentions of my actions, intentions of their actions this morning as they give, as they pledge themselves, pledge to you, Father, over this course of this week, over connecting with you in a way that's personal, so that you can see their heart and they can open their heart to you and see them truly giving what they need to give to you, Father, in a way that is not self-glorifying, but is glorifying to you. We thank you for this amazing opportunity this morning to worship you again. I just, that's what I can't keep getting off of my heart, that we have the freedom to do what we're doing right now. Thank you, Jesus. Again, we bless this offering, we bless this day and the rest of this week in your wonderful, amazing name. Amen. This morning, welcome Peter. Come on up, sir. He's preaching this morning. Thank you so much for your servitude, sir. I appreciate you. Good morning, everybody. Try that again. Good morning, everybody. There we go. Awesome. I hope we're doing well this morning. Um, maybe I will stand. Be fun. Uh, we're going to get in the Word this morning. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me, um, but I love this Word of God. It is uh, beautiful. It's a wonderful uh, document full of amazing, strange things. And we're going to look at some, a couple of strange things, hopefully, today that uh, maybe you haven't seen before. Uh, what page am I on here? Um, just be trying to think of a brief introduction here. 
in my journey um, in studying this word, um, I've been, for the last few years, under the conviction that uh, every single piece, I'm going to move this chair, every single piece, every single bit of it is inspired by the spirit of the living God. Can we agree on that? <laughs> Good. And that it is uh, for our benefit that we read it and we study it and we understand it and we find things in it that amaze us, astound us, that... Um, give us wisdom, and give us an understanding about who God is and how we connect to him. Um, now, if you've ever read through the Bible, you found that there are parts that are harder to um, really feel that way about than others. And I, and I want to talk about one section of the Bible um, today that I've, I've, I think some people might struggle through or that maybe they would kind of tend to skip over. Um, and it's nothing, I don't know, maybe you're think, oh, what's he going to get into today? Is this something controversial? Uh, no, it's not anything like that. Um, I'm talking about more of the, the boring bits. Um, maybe we can be honest. We might think of them as the boring bits of the Bible, right? Um, the last few months I've been studying the, the book of Exodus. I don't know if you've maybe you've noticed. I've sort of been pulling from it now and again as I've come up here on our, um, uh, for you know, our, our moments here, just like Josh did before. Um, and at the, the beginning of the book of Exodus is really exciting, right? Uh, there's uh, these big events that are happening. These are the stories that we remember li- hearing about as a kids, right? There's the, the people of Israel. They're, they're trapped, right, in the, uh, the land of Egypt. And there's this evil pharaoh who's oppressing them, who's enslaved them. It's a very dark and, and sad time because if you've read the story of the Bible, these are the people who are supposed to be the people of God. They're supposed to... Um, become kings and priests, it says in the book of Genesis. They're supposed to be a blessing to the nations of the world. They're supposed to be this amazing representation of God's presence and power and blessing. He says they're going to be fruitful, they're going to multiply. That's this beautiful thing. And you see them in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus in the total opposite state. They're oppressed, they're being destroyed, they're being killed. It's the picture of death and, and darkness And God saves them out from that place, and he brings them out, and he's going to show them what he's really like. Because in Egypt, their version of deity, their version of God, was Pharaoh himself, the person who was oppressing them and killing them. He said, well, I'm God. This is what God looks like. He's someone who oppresses and destroys and vaunts their own power over others. And God's going to pull them out to a place, and he's going to show them a different version of what God is like. And I'm going to talk about that today. Uh, but the book of Exodus gets to a certain point where he pulls them into the, the wilderness and he brings them to his holy mountain, it says, and he, he descends on this mountain and it's this be- this crazy picture of a fire and there's a, a loud voice booming out from the mountain. You can imagine it's very dramatic and very frightening, perhaps. And he, sa- and he calls the people, says, come, you know, come forward. We, we, we're going to be together. This is the whole point of me bringing you here. And they go, all right. <laughs> uh, let's figure something different out here, God. This is, this is freaking us out. Um, and they, they, it says they, they step back instead of stepping forward into the presence. And, um, and you might think this would really offend God, right? And, and he's a little miffed. He's like, well, we're supposed to be in relationship here, guys. We're supposed to be connected. And it's hard to do that if you don't like, come, come here, right? 
And if you're, if you're scared of me, that, that, that's a problem, right? And so they, they push Moses forward. You go there, Moses. Go. You go. You do it. Do it for us. Uh, and he, he's going to ascend uh, to the mountain for them. Uh, and what happens next is you, you expect he, he ascends up into the fire, right? He goes into the presence of God, and maybe we're expecting something really um, dramatic and exciting like has come before. Um, but what happens next um, is the, the last, um, let's see, it's chapter 25. So the last uh, 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are a series of schematics, uh, diagrams, and blueprints for the building of a structure with intense amount of details and, uh, and build this and do this and so many yards and shekels and fathoms and, and it can be, seem really, um, pushing your, <laughs> your, the limit of your ability to focus and to say, is this benefiting me spiritually at all? Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm learning how to, to, to build a tent here, which is essentially what it is. It's blueprints to build a tent. <laughs> which seems rather anticlimactic to, to end this book where you're, you're being brought out of this, this place of, of darkness and you're bringing up to the mountain and then we're building a tent. Woo! <laughs> um, but I've found in spending some time with it that there are some amazing things to, to pull out um, and to kind of focus us. Uh, there's a lot of things I think you could... You could look for here, but I think the, the main things I want to pull out is that this story is uh, the last few sections of the book of Exodus are, are doing something um, perhaps a little complicated that you have to have kind of a, a, a wider view of the Bible to understand what it's doing. Um, what it's doing is it's, it's dialoguing with other parts of the Bible. It's, it's um, creating patterns and connections to other pieces of the Bible, which is something that the scripture does. It's um, it's sort of like music. If you hear a melody from another song in a song that you know, it's like, oh, you're reminded of something, and it makes connections, even if it doesn't spell it out explicitly for you. Um, and this part of the Bible does that. It makes connections and dialogues with a very specific story in the Bible, uh, and those stories are found in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. <laughs> um, the Garden of Eden story which perhaps we might not think about if you're, as you're reading through schematics of tent making, you're not probably immediately coming, coming to your mind, oh yeah, Adam and Eve, the garden, the snake, the fall, the apple, all those things. Um, but those things are all swirling around in here, and, I'm, and I want to pull just a few of these things out for us today, if we might. Um, so, Moses goes up to the mountain. He starts getting the download in chapter 25 of Exodus about what this uh, tent is supposed to look like. Um, uh, what, and what it actually is, uh, I, I keep using the word tent, and maybe you've heard the other word that it's usually translated as is the word uh, tabernacle, right? We heard that the tabernacle, this is what Moses is being instructed to build. Um, this is God's plan, all right? The people aren't going to come to me. Well, I'm going to tell you how to build a tabernacle. And the word there actually, um, the word, this is sort of a side trail. I had to look it up. I was like, why do we call it a tabernacle? Um, and I looked it up, and apparently tabernacle is a, it's a Latin word. It comes from tabernaculus or something like that. Uh, and it just means tent, uh, but it also has these weird associations with like, um, like a, the, a kind of tent you would go to to like go drinking in. 
Um, so they're, uh, one of the modern words we have that are most related to this, um, tabernacle, is the word tavern. <laughs> and you can kind of hear it, oh yeah, tavern, tavern, okay, all right, okay, that's weird. Um, so the word that's used in the Bible is the word mishkan. Mishkan is the word that they use. They're, they're, Moses is being instructed to build a mishkan. Now, a mishkan isn't just a tent, it's a dwelling. It's, an ab- it's, it's a place of um, abiding is another really good English word for it. Uh, and dwelling and abiding are words of, um, of home. <laughs> They're words of belonging. Those are words of coming to be in a place of deep relationship and, and, and you know, just think about that word, to dwell somewhere. That's more than just like a passing by word. That's something deep and rooted and good, right? Um, and I just want to highlight that for a moment and say that that is um, perhaps a different picture than some of us maybe have uh, if we've ever uh, had an idea of the Old Testament God, right? Uh, the people step back, right? Maybe we'd expect that he's supposed to come forward in his flaming wrath, right? He's supposed to be um, full of justice and he's, supposed, he's just given them the law, right? So now he's going to bring down the hammer of the law, right? And that's the type of God who's depicted in the Old Testament, right? Um, But I find over and over again as I study this word that the God who's expressed in Jesus Christ, who um, picked up the woman uh, caught in adultery, who said, come little children unto me, who who spoke to the people in a way that was gentle and loving and in a way that it said that I identify with you, I know you, I love you. That same God is expressed over and over again in the Old Testament. It just we have to kind of remove our, our modern lenses a little bit to, to see it. And, and I think the, the fact that he has responds this way, he says, I want to make a dwelling place amongst you, to be in your midst, to be with you, uh, is an expression of that, right? The people say, we're, we're not going to do it your way, God. We, we, you told us to come to you, and we don't want to. Uh, and God says, okay. He, goes, he, does, he doesn't focus on the letter of the law and says, okay, my response should be they disobeyed, so what should I punish them with? Um, his first response is to say, is to use his imagination and say, all right, we're going to find a way for me to be with you, even if it isn't the best way, even if it, is, it revolves complexity and, and building this elaborate tent system. I'm going to use my imagination to find a way to be with you. And what a great God is that. What an imaginative, beautiful picture of a kind of God we serve. Um, but what is so special about this, this tabernacle, we might ask? What, okay, we're building a tent, um, and that's supposed to, why not any, why, why a tent, right? Why, why not anything else? Um, and so what I want to talk about is just those, those dialogues with the Eden narrative a little bit. Um, and so let's just imagine ourselves. Uh, coming into, we're, we're an Israelite, we're living in the middle of, you know, this, we're nowhere. We're nowhere, we're nowheresville, right? It's desert, it's, it's rocky, it's mountainous, it's, it's blah. You know, you're, this, is, this is nowhere to really want to exist. Um, but your God is with you. He's abiding with you in this place, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, right? And so you, you come forward and you see it on the horizon. It's this big structure. You see these big... Uh, these big linen walls that are set up in this big courtyard, and it, there's, you invite it in. You step into the courtyard. The presence of the holy God is, is ever nearer. You, there's sections set away just for him 
and you step into what is essentially a different world. <laughs> um, it separates from this, this desert and this, all this bland, worldly stuff, and suddenly you're stepping into something different. Um, and you see, approaching you is a priest, right? Um, and maybe our modern word priest, we maybe have a certain image, but uh, the image of a priest in the Bible uh, it goes into great detail in the section about how they are dressed. Um, and there's several interesting things about them. First of all, they're wearing these beautiful, lavish robes. They're, they're several colors. Um, and what it says is that they're made out of the exact same material as the great tent behind them. You see this big tent looming, and it's full of color. It's lavender and blue and red, and it's beautiful, and it's waving. It's these royal, um, strange colors, colors that are nothing like the desert around you. These are colors that, that evoke the sense of wonder, of, of deep uh, specialness, you could say. And the robes uh, coming out from there, out from the tent, is a person dressed in the exact same colors, and they are, they're like a piece of it. They're like a piece of the tent coming out to greet you. But there's something interesting about these robes is that they, it says that they are woven with gold inside of them. So this person, you can imagine the light is hitting them, and they're sparkling, they're shining. <laughs> I mean, it's very impressive. They're, they're like a, a little exemplification of the glory of the Lord coming out to greet you. <laughs> and they're, they're going to come meet you. Uh, it's this glorious image, right? Uh, and it says on the hems of their robes, there's these things dangling. Uh, there's these little, these little bells uh, and there's little fruits. And whenever you see little, whenever you see fruit mentioned in the Bible, your, your mind is supposed to immediately go back to that garden because fruit is always a, uh, an example of God's gift of abundance, his goodness, his ability to give and prosper humanity and give them everything they need, right? In the garden, the uh, humans just were there. He said, cultivate it, um, you know, be here, live it, eat from the trees, um, but the life from those trees, the, the wonder, the taste of them, um, that's all for me. I made that. That's a gift to you. And so, uh, they, these people are, are literally an embodiment of the garden itself, the fruit, and the, you know, the music of the bells is, is shining and dingling as they come along. It's, it's, it's quite spectacular, really. Um, and not only that, though, you see all that, uh, and you see that there are these stones placed upon them, uh, and the stones on their shoulders are mentioned... Uh, and this is just a little tidbit. The, the stones on their shoulders, uh, your Bible might translate it as, as onyx or sometimes carnelian. I've seen lapis lazuli. We're not really sure what type of stones they were, but they would have been some sort of precious stone, some sort of beautiful object, um, something that would have been very, perhaps very rare, and that maybe that's why we don't know exactly what, even what they are. Uh, but this, these stones, this is free, are mentioned seven times <laughs> throughout the book of Exodus, so... I think that's rather uh, maybe interesting and telling that they're important, perhaps. But on these stones that are placed in their shoulders, um, and these stones, uh, they're actually mentioned one other time. Besides in the book of Exodus, they're, booked, they're mentioned one time uh, in the book of Genesis, in the Eden story. Hey, they're one of the only stones mentioned in, in the region of Eden. There are these stones that it says that just happen to be there in this beautiful land. So it's part of the, the glory of God's creation and his gift to humanity. And they're on the shoulders of these priests, right? And it says that on these stones are written all the names of the tribes of Israel. 
And so I think when you're supposed to be seeing this priest, you're seeing all this glory, you're seeing this uh, exemplification of God's um, Eden paradise beauty coming out to meet you. Um, but what you see is inside is, is just a man. It's just a person. And on his shoulders are written the names of not just the tribe of the priests, which are the Levites, but all the tribes of Israel. And you see reflected there, um, it's, it's you. Uh, it's supposed to say there is a representation of, of all the people. Um, there's, there's nothing special about the priest. He's, he's just uh, a representation of something that you are actually a part of. You're being invited to be a part of it. Uh, and so this priest, uh, you see, he will go back into the, te- uh, into the tent after he's greeted you and you've maybe gone through some sort of sacrifice ritual with him. Uh, he goes back into the tent. Uh, and inside the tent, well, we'll take a peek inside the tent here. Uh, we come into a place called the holy place. And in this holy place, um, there are two objects. The first object is a beautiful golden table. Uh, and it's, this table is laid with golden bowls, with golden cups. Um, it's this, uh, it's an invitation, don't you think? Uh, you've laid a table. <laughs> uh, and it says that this table is laden with bread. And this is called the bread of the presence of the Lord. So it's like this invitation to the priests. Uh, you can just imagine, they gather around and they take their sustenance. It says there, there's cups there for their libation. So they're, they're drinking. This is a place of, of merriment, of joy, of feasting. Uh, this is, I mean, we maybe imagine the holy place as, as something really somber. Uh, and perhaps there was a, a, a definite reverence as, as the priests were approaching there. But I think the table suggests a type of celebration, a type of abundance. And this bread, it says, this bread of the presence of God was never to be let uh, run out. There was always bread on this table, always bread. And that's, you know, I, that's beautiful, isn't it? This, this ever abundance, continual provision of God in the presence of people, humanity, and God coming together and meeting at this table. And as they're eating at this shining golden table, their robes are shining all around them. Um, the light that is lighting this scene is a giant candle stand, a giant lampstand made of gold again. And this lampstand, full with seven lights, a great, again, that, that number seven is always connecting us back to that uh, that Eden story, that creation story where God spends seven days creating and completing the world and his creation. And so those seven lights are on a lampstand that is in the shape. Uh, you've, prob- you've probably seen maybe a, a menorah stand. Uh, these, they're in the shape of a tree. <laughs> uh, they're in the shape of a glorious tree full of light and glory and goodness. Uh, and so the image then you get of the holy place is of the people of God dressed in the presence, the very substance of the presence and the place of God. They are eating at a table that is laden with eternal bread, and they're lit by a golden tree, (laughs) a tree of life, you might say, just like that tree of life in that Garden of Eden at the start of all time. So this is an Eden space, um, a beautiful Eden space that they're, they're already in. Um, they're invited into with the presence of God. They're meeting there. Um, it's quite spectacular. Um, but it gets even better because up against one wall, um, towering up above them, uh, would, is this giant curtain. Uh, we, I think we know about the curtain. We've heard about it. And on this giant curtain, 
uh, are the images of two giant, uh, we call them cherubim. Giant, these giant angel figures are plastered there. Uh, and what this represents, and I've seen this connection in a couple places when people talk about this, uh, is if we remember our Garden of Eden story, uh, we remember that after the fall, uh, humans were, were told to leave that garden space, right? Um, they're told to exit and they're told to leave. And planted at the entrance of that garden space are these creatures. They're called cherubim, uh, these angel messengers of the Lord. And they're, they're these mighty kind of warrior-like figures. And they're standing planted at the entrance, guarding over it, so that uh, specifically humans can't be in the presence of, say, of the tree of life. Um, and this is the great problem of the Bible, is how are we supposed to get back to this place where we're eating from the tree of life, we're communing with God in the place that he's created for us. And so what's interesting here is here in the, the holy place, humans are already there, they're back. <laughs> we're, we're in this representational space of Eden where we're eating with God, we have the abundance, we have the light of the tree. So what's the question I find myself asking is, what's... What's more than that, right? It's holy, right? It's a holy place. Why, why have something even deeper than that? Um, and what I've, I think I've come to settle on is that um, part of what God wants to communicate with this space is that there's something more than just getting back to Eden that he wants to do. It's not just about getting back to this garden. It's not just about getting back to the abundance. It's not even about a tree of life. It's about something deep, a deep connection with him. And so there's this space beyond this curtain, beyond the cherubim that are guarding over it, there is a holy of holies. It's not just holy, it's it's holy holy. <laughs> it's extra holy. It's it's re it's this it's it's concentrated presence of God. It's 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 real strong. You um, the holy place, it's like a little watered down, you know, you you mixed it up in the drink so it's it's it goes down easy. But this place is like it's it's gonna hit you in the face a little bit. It's real tough. <laughs> real good, though. Real good. Um, and the beauty thing, beautiful thing about this place is that humans, even though there's these cherubim guarding over it, it's standing, you might say, well, well, we can't go in there. Holy place, good enough. It's like Eden, good enough. But one time a year, humans are indeed invited to take the risk, slip beneath the curtain, and enter into that presence. <laughs> and in that presence place... Uh, is a is a is a box. Uh, it's a box. It's overlaid in gold. It's, it's very beautiful. Um, and this box, we use a word for this box. Uh, we use the word ark. Uh, and if and I don't have time to really get into it, but if you read the book, uh, the rest of the story of the Bible, you'll see that arks appear two other times. Um, the first time is in the story of the flood, the story of Noah. Uh, he is instructed to build a giant box, um, and it's called an ark. And what happens is, is that there is a destruction of the world, right? There is death and destruction and chaos. But in the midst of that chaos is a tiny space, an ark, a box, where God's presence dwells with his people, and he has protected them, saved them, and created a space for life to exist in the midst of death and destruction. The second time, an ark appears is in the very beginning of the book of Exodus. There's a story uh, about Pharaoh. Uh, he's that evil oppressor, and one of the things he's going to do 
is he's going to kill every firstborn male child of the Israelite people. Um, He's coming down with the hand of death and destruction. Um, But in the midst of that death and destruction, um, one woman takes a box. (laughs) She makes a box, and they call it, um, oftentimes our Bible doesn't translate it this way, but the word that's used for it is a little ark. (laughs) Creates a little ark and places Moses in there. And so in the midst of, again, death, destruction, oppression, uh, there's a little space where God is preserving the life of his people. And the fact that it's Moses is is really pivotal, isn't it? Because he's such an important figure who's going to bring Israel forward into this place of connection to him. And so we see that again. And I think that's, I don't know, I was just trying to, I was ruminating on that the last few days. And what does that mean that the center of God's holiness and his presence is exemplified by one of these ark boxes, these things that always represent his, uh, his ability to create life in the midst of death. Uh, and I think it's just that, isn't it? It's, uh, I think that's the thing he wants to point to, is that his, uh, the place he wants to meet us from, the place he invites humans into the deepest intimacy with him, is in a place where he is creating life in the midst of death. Um, in the place where he is creating redemption. And that's this whole story, isn't it? The people step back, and he is stepping forward with redemption. Uh, he is stepping forward with his best foot, right? And that's the place he wants to meet people in. That's the place it says this ark isn't just a regular ark. It's an ark of the covenant, right? This is the place, this is the very meat and bones of his uh, connection to us. The agreement we have between us is made of him saying, you are living in a land of death and wilderness, but I am going to use my imagination. I'm going to use my wonder, my goodness, and my glory, and I'm going to push past that, and I'm going to make a way for you to come forward to meet me and to find life and goodness everlasting. Woo! All right. Now... Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on the next bit, and I, uh, but there's something uh, I think I, I do want to just touch on briefly, is that uh, the next part of the story is, is we're given this picture, this beautiful tabernacle. Moses has got the download. He's got the whole thing, right? He's, he's, got, the, he's got the tablets, right? And we might remember that the next part of the story isn't, doesn't go the way we would expect it to, Right? Um, the next part of the story is right after this download comes, we're ready to meet with God. It's going to be this, it's this beautiful picture of, of this Eden that's going to be popped up in the middle of the desert. It's like this, this amazing miracle, right? Um, humans are going to sit at a golden table and we're going to be the celebratory mood in the light of the tree and we're going to go beyond the cherubim and see the Ark of the Covenant. It's mind blowing, right? It's beautiful. Moses has got this all in his head. And God comes down and says, oh, by the way, um, you might want to take a look back at what the people are doing right now. <laughs> um, they've, they've done something a little different. I know we, we, me and you, we've, we've got a plan. We've got something good going on. We've cooked up a good scheme here. Uh, but the uh, people back, on, uh, back down in the base of the mountain, uh, they had a different idea of, of how to go about this. Uh, and so you, uh, we get the story of the golden calf, right, which is a fairly famous story, uh, Hope maybe we, if you haven't read it, go, go and read it. It's very interesting. Um, uh, the thing I want to touch on is, is this, is that 
from my perspective, we've built up this idea of God creating this space where humans and God can dwell together, <laughs> that we can be in the midst, he can be in our midst, and he can meet with us, and that's part of his goodness, that's a part of his character. And humans have a different idea of how this works. Um, and sometimes we read the golden calf story and it seems rather shocking. Uh, maybe we kind of shake our finger at them and say, oh, shame on you, how could you, where would you come up with this idea? But the thing is about this story, the golden calf story, uh, is just an example of the very, this would be a very traditional service, <laughs> more or less. Uh, if you were going to serve a god, uh, this is how you would do it. This is the way you would go about it. The story of the golden calf is they, um, they make a, an image, a golden image of a, of a calf. This is a, an image of, of fertility, perhaps, an image of abundance, right? Cows are very profitable items. They're things that would be very... Uh, sacred perhaps to your cultures and things like that. And then you throw a wild party in the name of this God, right? Um, they uh, do the things that people do when they, they throw wild parties. You can, you can imagine um, when people have no sense of what is uh, purpose, they have no sense of goodness, they have no sense of this abundance of God. It's, it's this idea of, well, you have to take, you have to destroy, you have to just gain whatever feels good in the moment, right? Uh, this is the type of party they throw. This is the type of world they think they live in. This is the kind of God they think God must be, right? Uh, this would be a very traditional, obvious way. If you read any uh, ancient stories, if you read any stories about uh, mythology, you'll see that the gods are, are often very petty, and they act a lot like humans where they take what they want and they leave everybody else in the dust, right? Uh, this is just, just a common idea. This is just the way things must be. It can't be that good, right? It couldn't be good. Uh, we certainly couldn't be, imagine something so good as the impossibility of God creating paradise in the middle of the desert and asking people to meet with him in an intimate and beautiful way. Certainly, he couldn't be that good, right? And so <laughs> Moses sees what's happening with the people uh, and he's devastated, of course. And he does something interesting uh, that uh, concerned me as a child. <laughs> and sometimes I heard this story told in a certain way where Moses' response was this. Uh, I was told, uh, the, I think one of the, f the first few times I heard the story, this is, this is what I was told. That Moses took the golden calf, he, he boiled it down, right? And then he made the people eat the molten gold, <laughs> And obviously that would uh, probably kill you and be very uh, painful and, and horrendous, right? I, I went back and read the story for myself. This is not what Moses does. <laughs> uh, rest assured, nobody was eating molten gold in this story. Uh, what he does is it says he burns it, he crushes it down into powder, and then it says what he does is he puts it in water, but the specific phrase it uses for Moses, I'd never noticed this before until the other day, the specific phrase he uses it is it says he scatters the powder over the face of the water. And the only other time that phrase is used over the face of the water is in the book of Genesis chapter 1 um, when it's describing God himself um, standing over the earth. It says that the earth is this formless, um, chaotic, watery place of darkness and nothingness. It's 
death incarnate. And it says that at the very beginning of time, God was hovering over the face of the water. And it's this picture of God just about to move, create, explode with life in the middle of death. And so here, in the midst of essentially what is uh, Israelites' fall story, it's the, their Garden of Eden uh, taking the apple. There's even, I don't have time to get into it, but some patterning that shows that um, when they are building the calf, it's, there's some um, language that relates uh, the taking of the calf, the taking of the gold to Eve taking the apple off the tree. So it's this, this fall story. In the middle of the fall story, Moses comes in. He takes the very thing they've used um, to run away from God, and he is acting in the place of God at the beginning of creation over death and darkness, and he scatters that thing over the water like it's gone. And it says he just he gives the water to the people, and so these people now have gold inside of them, which I think is rather interesting, and maybe you, you can just kind of even imagine that image. Gold inside of you now. Instead of this gold thing we're worshiping up there, that gold is part of you. Because <laughs> um, what we're meant to do is come into the presence of God and be a part, right? And not this thing that we put off the side and create and say, well, it's over there, and now that's God over there, and I get to run over here and have my party. Instead, it's this invitation to depth. <laughs> it's this internal thing. Uh, and so Moses is starting something when he's, he's saying he's, he's over the, wa- the face of the waters. Um, it's this beginning of this creation, this new creation story. And what you'll find, if you read the last, uh, let's see, it's the last five, six, seven chapters of, of the book of Exodus, um, it's what maybe what seems like the most boring part. Um, uh, again, you, you're expecting something, Moses has come down off the mountain, he's, he's fed the gold to the people, he's stopped the, the rioting, he's, he's, he's gotten the people back on track, uh, and what we dive into is another set of schematics. Another set of, of diagrams, another set of blueprints. Um, and as modern readers, we're like, ah, oh, I just read this. This is, this is boring. This is dull. Skip, 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 skip to the end, right? <laughs> um, but for the people who wrote this, I think, what this signifies is what it seems like it should be, is after that golden calf story, that should be the end. That should be the end of your Bible. The story of humanity and God is God tried... Humans suck, they failed, the end, right? That should be the end of the Bible, right? Exodus 32 should be, oh, and then the people didn't want to worship God. They worshiped a golden calf instead. So Moses comes down and kills them all, and that's the end, right? Uh, we tried, try, God tried. Uh, no. Instead, we, we move back in and say, no. Instead, God keeps going. <laughs> he keeps forward. The picture, that beautiful picture that seems impossible of Eden on earth he says, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Even though in the midst of this death and destruction, um, and it, this, I mean, this thing that they were doing, this party that they were throwing, it's, it's not like they were having fun. Um, it's Josh, it says that Joshua, when he, Joshua heard the people from the top of the mountain, it says it sounded like a war. <laughs> it sounded like a battle was going on. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. Um, most fun parties don't sound like people are fighting each other and killing each other, right? <laughs> Um, and it says that this party was so bad that Moses, the, the only way for Moses to stop it is he had to take up arms and, and fight the people. That's how bad things had gotten. So this is a picture of death and destruction. It's a total opposite 
of this Eden picture that was just built, of this intimacy and beauty and abundance. It's people just grabbing and taking. It's hopeless. Well, we're in the middle of the desert. Let's just eat everything and kill each other. Whatever, you know, it's this terrible thing. Uh, There's nothing hopeful about it. There's no promise of a beautiful future. There's no growing into a nation of priests and kings here. It's just, let's live for the moment, and at the end, we'll be done. We'll just piff out into nothing, right? And Moses sees this, and he says, no, we're going to, move forward. These are the people that I'm going to create my Eden presence in the midst of. I am going to make you into what I've said I've made you, whether you see it or not, whether you hope for it or not, whether you think that you're just going to die and it's all destruction, I'm going to make it possible. And so these chapters are like, oh, it's happening because that's what's happening. Instead of God describing the schematics and saying, this is what we're going to do, it's, and then they did it, and then they built it, and then it was there. Um, and what's interesting about this picture uh, is that it's told in seven units, just like the days of creation. And in this, at the end of the sixth unit, uh, get there. At the end of the sixth unit, uh, there it is. Uh, at the end of the sixth unit, just like at the end of the sixth day, where God finished all of creation, it says that. Uh, It describes it this way, that the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting was completed. Yes. And it says, Moses saw all the tasks had been done, and look, they had been done as the Lord had charged. Thus they had done, and Moses blessed them. That's all Eden language right there. Instead, in fact, that that phrase, seeing it all, and look. (laughs) That's, That's straight from the end of Genesis 1 where God finishes creations and says, and look. It was good, right? And Moses blessing it is the exact same thing. God sees the world. He blesses it at the end of creation. Um, And so it's like that moment where he boils down that calf and he's scattering it over the face of the waters. That's the beginning of creation. And now this building of the tent is like this picture of new creation coming out of the world of death and destruction, out of nothingness. Suddenly, this tent is there. And... It's beautiful. It's Eden itself. It's just as the end, at the end of the, the Eden story, Eden is there and humans are living there. There's the tent. Ah, amazing. Um, where I want to land us here is just the end of the, the story. If you look at the last sentences of the book of Exodus, um, something interesting happens. Um, we've got the tent, and it says that God's presence, uh, I'll read it to you, actually. It says, the cloud came over and covered the tent of the meeting itself. And the glory of the Lord filled the whole tabernacle, so much so that Moses couldn't even come near the tent of meeting. For the cloud abode upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud went up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would journey onward in all their journeyings. And if the cloud did not go up, they would not journey onward until the day it went. For the Lord's cloud was over the tabernacle by day, and fire by night was in it before the eyes of all the house of Israel in all their journeyings. And to me, that picture is is something rather funny about it, right? You spend um, 15 chapters describing this beautiful Eden space that humans are going to be in this intimate connection with God. It's this sense of uh, we're we're recreating Eden, we're getting back to the garden, right? And, And then God just swallows it up. His whole presence is... It's dramatic, it's, it's crazy, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Uh, and the sense I get uh, from the story is this, is that it really is never really about a place. 
It was never about the structure and the diagrams and the details. Uh, it was always just about him. It was about him being and abiding with the people. Uh, and it's funny, we imagine the tent being about like hiding and covering, and we have the veil and we have the curtain. Um, but there's nothing being hidden in this image of God, is there? He's, he's covering the whole thing, and he's with the people. Uh, man. Yeah. So, on that note, um, how'd I want to end this? Here, here's, here's where I'll, I'll, I want to, I want to leave you with. If you didn't hear anything that I said today, if it all seemed like a lot of me spewing gobbledygook about the tabernacle and all that stuff, you can go read it for yourself. Um, it, it's this, that, uh, our idea of Eden, I guess, I think maybe is shift, I think for me has shifted since I've seen the things that the Bible does with the idea of the Garden of Eden. I think for a lot of us, the Garden of Eden is sort of this fantastical idea of the beginning of humanity that is just sort of there at the beginning of the book to kind of say, well, it used to be this way, but now it's not. And for most of humanity, we've read it that way. There's the most famous depiction of it was written by a man named uh, John Milton, and his most famous book is called Paradise Lost. <laughs> um, it's the idea that um, humanity doesn't deserve something like this. They don't deserve something as good as this. And for most of humanity, uh, we've sort of read the story of Eden that way, where it's just this sort of undeserved goodness that we don't get because we're so bad, right? We, we, we threw it off, right? Um, but the story over and over again it speaks to a God who is pulling us back in and saying, no, I am creating it over and over and over again. And the thing about this Eden is it's not some fixed place. People have spilled, spilled a lot of ink and spent a lot of time searching for the true location of the Garden of Eden. And to me, that seems like a waste of time because the Bible moves on from that pretty quickly. All of a sudden, Eden isn't a garden that's fixed somewhere in Mesopotamia. It's a thing that can be moved. It's a thing that when God's presence goes, so does the garden. And everywhere it plants, it's the garden going here. It's going there. It's going wherever it is. That's where paradise is going. And so what I want to leave us with today is that each of us is this. <laughs> the Bible over and over again points to this idea that this tent wasn't about a tent. It was actually about the people that were coming to it. Remember the priests, they were dressed like the tent, <laughs> and they were moving around and meeting the people and going out from that place. And I think it's notable that, that when Jesus is on that cross and dies, that cur curtain tearing, I think that's what that's about. It's about this idea that, um, and I heard this thing just the other weekend, we were listening to a message, and, and he asked, um, was the curtain tearing just about us getting into God? Was it about God coming out and affecting the world. And I think it's both, isn't it? Um, we live in a world that is full of that death and darkness. If we read the story of the golden calf, we might see some resemblances to the death and darkness and destruction that seems hopeless in our world today. But we have been sent out. <laughs> we have been prepared with a golden glittering glory of goodness. <laughs> and every single part of that Eden ideal is here with us right now. The abundance, 
the fruitfulness, the multiplication, the wonder, the provision, and just the concentrated presence of the Spirit of God, just like that image. Uh, I, I think that image is so profound of the of swallowing the whole tent in the glory and the fire and the smoke. Um, that's the Spirit of God who lives in each and every one of you. That's His power, and that's the power of His redemptive Spirit. That's why I, I called this, this message um, the tabernacle, the power of God's redemption. Redemption isn't just this thing where we say, oh, I forgive you, you're, okay, you're good to go. It's, it's something that shakes you. It's something that changes you. It's something that changes the world around us and creates life where there once was death, a miracle, something impossible, but something that God has the imagination and the wonder and the belief and the power to do. And so we just need to partner with him to step into that place and say, I agree that you can do what you say you're going to do. I believe in that power of that life that shakes and rattles the chains of death and darkness in this world. So, Father, we dedicate ourselves to you. We dedicate our going out from this place to you as we approach the desert of the world, uh, that we would be that pop-up tent of paradise, that pop-up tent of life and experience of God uh, for those who meet us and for the land that we live in, Jesus. Uh, We celebrate all that we do in your name, and we bless this day in your name. Amen. (sighs) All right. So... Thank you. All right, so you are dismissed. There is no meal, unfortunately, but I heard there are goodies in the foyer, so please stay around, fellowship with each other, pray for each other, laugh with each other, all that good stuff. Um, you're, if you need prayer, please come forward. There will be people to pray with you. Um, have a wonderful week. Bless you. Thank you.